two, one. This is our second test. This is our audio test with interview with Kim Zion. Kim, how are you today? I'm fine, thank you, Leo. And what will be the what will we be discussing today? I believe that you would like to discuss the recent trial I was involved in. Uh, that was regarding the the actual killing of my son in 2013. So are you ready to get started? Yes, I am. Are you volunteering this? Yes, I'm volunteering this. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And welcome to another episode here at Full-Blooded Podcast. My name is Mr. X, but you can call me Leo. Today in the lounge for raw, unedited, and just from the heart conversation, we have a special guest, a very close friend of mine, and a business partner. This lady and I have done a lot of things together. And uh, I kind of use that term, loose business partner. I mean, we've done a couple things together, but... Uh, not in a long time, actually, because you've been really busy um, in the ballroom world and in the real world with something that is probably um, overwhelming to most people. And because I don't even know how to de- how to introduce, I mean, I'm almost losing words here, how to describe this. I would like you, Kim, to introduce yourself and tell people why we're here and what we're going to talk about. My name is Kim Zion, and uh, we are here to discuss for the first time the recent trial I was involved in that had to do with the 2013 uh, shooting death of my son by an Orange County Sheriff. And I kind of have to pause here because, uh, you know, anyone listening to this right now is thinking, whoa, you know, that's, you know, it doesn't get any, it doesn't get any bigger than that. And when I first met you, it was because um, I was volunteering my ballroom dance services. Uh, I wanted to be around youth, and you hooked me up with an organization called the CBC Organization. Tell people what that organization is about. Well, CBZ stands for Connor Bishop Zion Foundation. Uh, after my son was killed, and by the way, we'll back up a little bit, uh, he was a ballroom Latin dancer from the time he was eight years old. And after he was killed, um, we decided to, a group of people uh, and myself decided to um, start a foundation. And this was actually his roadmap. Uh, We had learned through a number of his journals that he left behind that his goal was to introduce uh, youth dancers, those with disabilities and high risk, to ballroom. Uh, ballroom dancing is an expensive sport, and he was fortunate enough to be able to do this from the time he was eight years old, and he wanted other people to enjoy this sport, uh, something that centered him and that was his passion in life, and that's what CBZ was, or is still. And um, so I have a little experience in teaching dancing, and Kim and I uh thought it was a good idea to send me to Culver City, and so you sent me on an assignment over there, and that's how you and I started working together, and I, I needed to know, what's the CBC Foundation about, like, who was this young man, Connor Zion, and, and I saw lots of pictures on his website since he was a little kid dancing all the way till he I, no longer was here on this earth, but it was quite interesting to me that even though your son had already passed, you were in this legal battle with the man who shot your son. And so the foundation celebrates the life of a dancer. And a young man who also, like myself, believed that dancing in general helps 
social healing or is very therapeutic. Some people like to ride horses. Some people like to pet snakes or carry a parrot on their shoulder or dogs on planes. But me, I like dancing. I like to get lost in that. And you sent me to an autism school and an at-risk uh, school as well. And uh, it taught me to get reconnected to the, the, what, I call, what I call the gospel of ballroom or the healing therapeutic uh, environment that you're in when you're doing dancing with, with other human beings. So I, that's why I respected your son so much. But I get not, never got a chance to meet him, and it's so sad that I never will, even though I got to know a lot about him through you. And, there are, and there's videos on him on YouTube dancing. But um, you just finished a, a monumental case, and this is how we come back to what's going on in your life right now. Because you went after, in essence, you didn't let it go. You went after the man that shot him. And it sounds uh, a little clear-cut, but it's not, because here's where the twist comes in. Go ahead. Yes, it's been a long road, a very difficult road. And um, when we were putting together CBZ, when you, Leo, uh, became involved, and when we worked with the, with the schools, as you mentioned, that had kids with different types of disability. Uh, being on the autism spectrum was one of them. My son had a seizure disorder. Uh, he had nocturnal epilepsy. And that, of course, um, well, to back up, that actually is, is how all of this happened on this horrific night uh, almost five and a half years ago. And uh, yes, it's been a fight. My son had a seizure episode and I, was, I had been living in Seattle, Washington at the time, and that's where my son was raised. He actually came to California to follow his dream of dancing How and follow in his country. 19. He was 19 years old. He passed away at 21. <clears throat> so he wasn't here all that long, but enough time to um, meet some people, continuing to uh, reestablish himself in the competitive world of dancing while struggling with this uh, seizure disorder as well. Um, when all of this happened, he was in the middle of uh, a terrible episode, uh, trying to get him help from a very misunderstood episode. He was... Um, shot and killed by an Orange County Sheriff. Uh, not only was he shot at 18 times, uh, nine times at close range, execution style, uh, he was also stomped on the head. Uh, the Sheriff, it's been highly publicized. Um, his name was is Michael Higgins. And fortunately, we did get a verdict of excessive force, which is very rare, and so it is monumental, and laws have been changed in regards to the types of things that uh, law enforcement can do and cannot do uh, from this particular episode. So the hope is that my son will not be able to be with us anymore, but maybe this situation and going through this trying time uh, will help somebody else in the future and so no other mother has to go through what I've been through for the past five years. It's been a long, long road uh, that's involved an appeal through the Ninth Circuit Appellate Court, uh, the Supreme Court, and finally through a trial that just ended a couple of weeks ago.
And this is my first interview. I have been asked by a number of television networks and newspapers and radio stations to do interviews or comments, and I have let my legal team deal with that. But this is the first time I am speaking out to tell my story. And who is your legal team? Uh, My legal team is led by uh, Dan Stormer, um, Cindy Pinocco, and Brian Olney. From um, they are located in a firm in Pasadena. And what have what advice have they given you regarding interviews or speaking your mind? Well, at this point, since the trial's over, I'm free to speak on whatever subject I want to in regards to the trial. I didn't choose to speak, obviously, during the trial, and none of us had the time to do that. Afterwards, um, my legal team told me I could say whatever I wanted and has asked me each time if I want to comment. Uh, But I've had bad experience in the past with the media, and I feel that sometimes things don't get reported the way I would like them to be reported. Um, Words get changed around, and I'm glad this is on a podcast where I can actually hear it from my own voice and my own words rather than something that's being written or represented in a different manner. I um, feel that what you experienced, you know, having your son, because you have, you only had one son and you had him a little unexpected and it was quite uh, an amazing journey itself from surviving birth to getting to a point of how he uh, became such a good dancer through a lot of hard work. Uh, you said that he was, when he was born, he was uh, extremely premature. Uh, yes, he was born two months prematurely. And through the years, we found out that uh, he was born with a underdeveloped nervous system, which probably led to finally uh, anxiety issues and finally led to the, you know, maybe a con- contributing factor to the um, epilepsy that he had that was not discovered until he was 18 years old. That's when his first seizure episode happened uh, at 18. And I think it's important that we kind of, when we have the opportunity to share a little bit more about Connor's life, right? Not so much his passing and not so much what he used to be, but I mean, that's how I, I never got to talk to the young man, but yet you've told me so much about him and we've done so much uh, to help other youths uh, experience, you know, a positive environment through dancing and volunteering at schools and stuff. That one thing that always rang with me regarding you and I talking about Connor was you wanted to get to a point where you could finally bury him, which is why this case went on for over four years, I think. Uh, well, five. It went almost five years. It was so important for you to, to get this thing closed, finally put him at rest, and then you pick up with your life because during those five years. You've gone really through some major ups and downs, and that and at any time you could have walked away. But what what was it you were looking for? Because you had said, well, maybe not you yourself, but your attorneys had mentioned in the media that uh, they felt justice had finally come to you guys, to your family. Um, I always felt from the very beginning that this was wrong, <clears throat> and what happened didn't have to happen, um, and so I needed to try to get some uh, accountability for what had happened to Connor. And I needed to keep trying. I needed to keep fighting. Win, lose, or draw, I always said from the very beginning, I had to try for him. And so, yes, um, 
people talk about money and settlements. It wasn't just about that. The fact that we changed law and that this was recognized of what happened with some justification. And yes, um, burying him is going to be very important to me uh, to be able to finally lay him to rest. Obviously, he was cremated <laughs> and I do have his ashes, but I wanted to uh, make sure that he has a resting place. And one of the things I feel that's very important is, uh, as you know, Leo, the tagline for the foundation has been, the world spins brighter in the heart and soul of a dancer. And I look at it this way with what's happened is the world just spins brighter because we changed the law. And that's how I want it to be remembered. And um, for those of our listeners who are uh, maybe a little bit unclear as to what exactly went on, because, you know, we know there's a case that's closed. We know it was a big deal in, in the legal system, and it's affected how laws are now going to be applied in court. There was an officer who was awarded a medal, but now is in question because he was, I don't know if the word's convicted, but he was definitely guilty of excessive force. There was a point in the media when I was reading on the internet, when I, when I Googled, anybody can, can Google his name, Connor Bishop Zion. Especially if you put Connor Bishop Zion and Officer Higgins, a lot of stuff is going to come out. And in one of those articles I was reading, it said there was a point where they felt the first six shots, not two, not three, not four, the first six shots, actually were not death shots. And there could have been a different alternative where if he would have, Officer Higgins, used a different form of force to guarantee that he was going to stay down. And the article said um, pepper spray or the, um, the taser gun uh, or wait for backup. There could have been an alternative ending, and Connor could have gotten medical care. We would ne- we would actually never know because it never got to that point because Officer Higgins, in that same decision, decided to unload his weapon and then do even uh, further damage. And that's where the law was affected because <clears throat> I definitely don't want um, anyone who's going to Google Connor and find out how everything went down. There's video out there. It's very graphic. I know that you stepped out of the court every time it got to that point. We should probably advise everybody out there that, you know, this is this is not a um, stroll down the park type of conversation. This is going to be the first time that Kim Zion has actually opened up about how she's felt. I have personally experienced you uh, going through tough moments in your life where um, you weren't sure if you were going to make it or not. And we weren't sure if you were going to make it or not, you know, if you wanted to be around or not. Because anytime you lose your loved one or your child, my firstborn, I, I mean, what are you going to do? Uh, and we're going to wrap up the next minute here because I wanted this to be an intro to what we're talking about. Google the name and you will get the whole lowdown. And it's not a clear-cut story. If it was a clear-cut story, I'm sure, you know, you would have probably won this a long time ago. The attorneys wouldn't have to fought so hard. It's got to be huge kudos to your attorneys to be able to set some sort of a pseudo-president. I mean, these guys knew that they were not guaranteeing an easy battle and an easy victory. And in a sense, you almost felt like there was a little compromise to get to what really was important to you. And and I and I want to actually highlight that, meaning how much you were awarded, because um, in the end, the attorneys want to make as much money as they can, and they're willing to make this thing go as long as they can for their resumes, for their for their accolades, paper trail, and all that. But what I wanted this introduction, 15-minute first podcast episode to be about is what we're talking about, why this is important. And then, like any 
journalist, you know, ask some of those tough questions. I think um, instead of having the media bombard you with questions that may or may not come from a bad place, I think the common man would like to know, you know, well, what about this or what about that? Because in the end, I think whether it's you or anyone who's on your side or vice versa, your nemesis, it, it helps us grow in understanding how we reconcile things to ourselves. And I think that's why I like interviewing people so much, interesting people so much. You're definitely one of the most interesting people I've ever met. And uh, you might be like Joe Nuzzo, a couple of series here. We, we haven't even talked about the Armenia mob. <laughs> Just kidding. Or am I? Uh, we're going to continue to go more on this. This is the first episode of The Life and the case of Connor Bishop Zion with our special guest, Kim Zion. We'll, we'll be right back. And here we go with round two in the Full-Blooded Podcast. Uh, we have Kim in our mobile studio, and we're talking about a case that you just completed, took almost five years. Uh, without having to get too much into the details, what what exactly was the law that was changed or that was put in because of Connor's case? You said that there was something that was established in other cases. We'll be able to use this as a reference, this experience. Tell, tell us more about that. Well, that has to do with the excessive force, and in particularly as well, head stomping and the um, force that uh, law enforcement, uh, in this case it was a sheriff, take uh, as far as when somebody's actually down and to, you know, to the excessive shooting of people. And of course, like I said, the inhumane act of stomping on somebody's head, Uh, but to try to take... Uh, more measures uh, to control a situation versus just, you know, executing somebody um, to have more value in somebody's life. And in this particular case, um, nothing was, no other means were tried. Um, There was nothing, he was already on the ground. Uh, There was no danger at the moment. He could have you know, he could have handcuffed him. He could have done a whole variety of things, but instead he chose to just kill him. And those things, I'm hoping in the future with all of this, that this case can be referred to, uh, they just won't happen. As, I mean, as often, and hopefully not happen at all. So let's get into how everything uh, developed from your recollection. You were downstairs, in the kitchen, I believe, when you saw Connor come downstairs and you said that he looked different. You were visiting him from Seattle. He's in California learning to be a, a competitor, and he's 21 years old working in a dance studio. He's a typical young kid, right? And you said that something wasn't right. Take us from how that was the last time you saw him well. Okay. <laughs> a lot of different things have been reported in the media and uh, which I would like to get straight from my own words because things continue to be uh, reported inaccurately. Uh, Yes, Connor had uh, experienced, he was killed on a Tuesday evening. Connor had started experiencing from, I believe it was Thursday evening, uh, the Thursday before, a series of seizures. And he was living with a roommate. Uh, his roommate had contacted me to let me know that this was happening. And, and we had gone through this before, had gone to the hospital. You know, then I used to call a reboot. He would need to reboot. Um, he was 
seemed to be a little bit better over the weekend. And uh, by Tuesday morning, I received a message from his roommate that I needed to come down to California. I was in Seattle because he had continued to have these seizures and he needed medical attention. So yes, I had just flown in from Seattle and I had just arrived at the condo. I was talking to his roommate when, and he had been sleeping when he came downstairs and it wasn't right. Things were just not right. I'm not even sure if he really recognized me. And uh, there were, you know, there were several things that were going on. Um, he became, he became very agitated. Um, he um, was angry. Um, he sensed things were, you know, things were wrong. Things were going to happen, and and you know, it it became a. An, a situation that was out of control. And uh, Connor did pick up a kitchen knife, and it was more like stand back. Um, in the midst of all of this, his, his roommate, and it was more accidental, uh, was cut very badly as it came down, and we were trying to disarm Connor. Um, his roommate uh, was hurt and had gone out the back to get help. I had continued to stay in the condo uh, where I was able to grab the knife out of his hand. And when I grabbed the knife out of his hand, I cut myself very slightly under my thumb. And I threw the knife into a fire pit. Uh, reports keep coming back that he stabbed us and there were some, all these issues that never happened. That is not what happened. And um, when we were trying to get help, uh, through neighbors and uh, an ambulance. We really wanted an ambulance there. Uh, the police were contacted and they arrived. Uh, I do understand, but I cannot really comment that much because I did not see this. Connor did have an altercation with one officer, and um, when he and that officer was cut on on the arms, um, and then when he. I don't. I believe Connor was asleep through all of this. Uh, when he um, he jumped up, he ran away. Uh, Officer Higgins came in, and at some point, Officer Higgins, as Connor was running away, uh, Officer Higgins continued to shoot him, shot him nine times while he was running, and then he shot him another nine times after he was already on the ground, and uh, basically just executed him at close range and then stomped on his head three times after that. Uh, what I learned through the trial, which is heartbreaking to me, is Connor was alive. He was alive very much uh, up until the execution. And uh, from the videos, it even looks like maybe he was had his arms up trying to say, maybe stop. And um, then uh, he was also alive even through the head stomping and probably lived a couple of minutes through all of it. So he did suffer from our medical examiner uh, a great deal of pain and suffering during that period of time. And, and for the specific purpose of why this case was important to you, it was because you weren't putting up for debate or evaluating how you got to this fork in the road the case was really focused on there was a point in time where, where Connor's life could have been saved. There were other adequate alternative choices or should have been in, in some 
measure of this process, and that the six shots that went into Connor's body were not death shots, and so the other nine excessive shots, plus the head stomping, is what really made this case go over the edge. And that's, and that's what you found that was intolerable, because there was an option. Uh, yes, Leo. Um, actually, it was nine shots, the first nine shots, so there were a total of 18 shots. Yes, um, I have never argued the point that the, it was a situation that needed to be put, you know, in control. I've never argued that. I've never argued the fact that there was some, um, that Connor himself had, you know, had some accountability. However, he was in a state, and one of the things that my attorneys pointed out during the trial, when you're having this kind of a, a break, whether it was from his seizures, a psychotic break, whatever it was, you have a mental health issue, and when you have a mental health issue, you cannot be held responsible for your actions. You cannot be held responsible for negligence. And that was one of the points that my attorneys had had tried to make during the um, during the trial, that that was something that needed to be um, pointed out. My whole situation through this was there needed to be accountability that there was wrongdoing, that you don't just kill somebody. And and when Officer Higgins was given the medal, the Medal of Valor, the highest medal for bravery, there was no bravery involved. He literally murdered my son. And if you want to give somebody a medal, you give people medals for saving lives. You don't give people medals for taking lives. And that's really the point and why I had to continue to fight this fight. It's because you don't... Um, you don't accept an award or get awarded for killing somebody. And that was the part that has just been absolutely uh, ludicrous to me. And I know right now that there's been a lot of controversy over what did happen, what he was awarded, and now he has been found guilty of excessive force. What, what does that mean to an officer and... and what what do you think happens next? Or what do you have your attorneys told you what possibly is gonna I mean, you've got you got your personal victory, right? You 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 let the world know that this man who was an officer of the law crossed a boundary and because of that your son was guaranteed death. Our hearts go out to you, but now that you got this far, what's next? Honestly, Leo, I don't know. Um I'm sure there will be hurdles for him in his career. Unfortunately, uh, this is a civil case. It's not a criminal case. There's no criminal charges that go along with it. Uh, what actually happens to uh, Officer Higgins at this point, I don't know. I do believe, though, that the more these things start to ha happen, five years ago when my son was killed, you didn't hear about the shootings from officers quite as much, or you certainly didn't hear about any type of criminal action. Now I think we are getting to the point where officers are being held accountable for their actions. And there have even been charges and officers that have been convicted recently. And I'm hoping that this sort of behavior changes and that they don't get away with this kind of behavior. Um, 
at no time, as far as I'm concerned, uh, you should, should you just take a life. You should do everything to save lives. And that's what I believe, or it used to be, officers are here to protect and to serve. And I feel that we've gotten away from that now. They're not here to protect and to serve us. And that's scary. It's scary in our society. So uh, I don't really have a good answer for you on that. But all I can say is that I hope that um, as more and more of these things happen and there's more exposure and they wear body cams and you can see that, um, that we we find we hear less and less of it and one of the interesting things about this uh you had mentioned the video and it's very graphic um i still have never seen the video i've never watched the video it was played many many times along with pictures and autopsies and everything throughout the trial i was one thing i will say by both uh, both sides that they were very understanding of me being a mother and did not want my, me to remember my son that way. So I never have seen any of this. But five years ago when it happened, the videos were not released. They were sealed. So the public did not see this. When the awards were given, when, when all the things happened, the public never saw this. When we originally lost in a summary motion and we appealed it and when it went through the appellate court uh nine justices i mean excuse me from the ninth circuit three justices um unanimously said this was in their eyes um a case where a jury could find that this was excessive force and took away officer higgins immunity said i had the right to sue and they also took it a step further, which is very unprecedented. They unsealed the videos. That normally doesn't happen. And they unsealed the videos so that everybody could see it. So the video was already on on the Internet or in public media a year before you actually went to your January final court? Mm -hmm. One year when it was when the appeal was one. year when the appeal was won. We won the appeal in November of 2017, and uh, the videos were released by the Ninth Circuit at that point in time. And the way I found out about them was by CBS contacting me to tell me that it was going to be on the news. And I remember you said that you got phone calls from some friends that they had seen on the news and had warned you, be aware, it's on the media, you don't want to catch eyes on that. Cause like you said, you don't want to remember Connor that way. Um, this show definitely is, you know, by any means in a position to say who's the bad guy and who the good guy is. Ultimately, I think we're more interested in sharing an experience that it is that is unique. And in your case, it's ex not only unique, but it's extremely painful. Um, and so it's an open forum for you to say basically how you feel about it, right, without mm -hmm. feeling any pressure from the media. My question to you, if, if I was the medium, what I think is important is, how do, you, how do you feel now? Do you think, like, you can move on? You think you're finally past this? Do you care or not what happens to Higgins? That's not even a memory anymore. I mean, to you, you wanted to make sure that Connor was on the books and he wasn't remembered in the way that that he went on the police report. To you, you wanted it more than that. But, I mean, are, have you forgiven him? You've never forgiven him. Do you want to keep thinking about him do you, or the police department or the sheriff's department? I mean, where are you where are you as a person? I mean, this does not identify you who you are, but for a long time, this was almost all your energy because you lost your son, and you have to find some place of peace. What what happens to you now that that this is now 
tangibly filed away in our legal system. I mean, what do you do next? Well, uh, I don't know if it's filed away yet. There's still some steps, and I'm not sure what's going to happen in regards to the case altogether. Just because something happens and there's a verdict or you say that there's an award, there's a lot of things that can happen, including an appeal. So I'm not sure where everything's at with that yet, and if this is actually over or if this will continue or what the segment is. Uh, I can tell you that Uh, facing Michael Higgins in court every day for two weeks was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my life. When you face somebody who's actually taken the life of somebody that you love, it's not very easy to do. So that was very difficult. Um, Am I ever going to forget that? No, of course not. Uh, I have been approached about a book. I've been approached about a screenplay. And I am definitely considering these things. Uh, It was a brought to my attention that this was um, a historical um, a historical event as well and therefore it should be documented and you did just say something it's very important to me that people don't remember Connor by the way he died but the way he lived and one of the things that was extremely frustrating to me during the trial was People only saw the last few minutes of Connor's life. The jury only heard about the last few minutes of Connor's life because the trial was about Michael Higgins. It was was, uh, an excessive force against him, so it wasn't necessarily about Connor. But that, that bothers me, and I don't want his story to end this way. And that's the answer to your question over why did I do this? Why did I continue Uh, what am I going to do now? It was because I couldn't let his story end that way. And one of his coaches told me that when we did the foundation, that he has to continue to live through us. And that's why we do what we do. And we'll continue to do that as a legacy uh, to him, to others. And it's not just about, uh, it's it's about uh, what he loved in his dancing, but it's also about a lot more and I'm hoping that the foundation can help other, other people, other kids that are in uh, maybe bad situations. Maybe they have a disability. Maybe they're in a high-risk situation that, as you know, you taught in a school with kids with disabilities, and they came from very bad home environments, whether it was gang-related, whether it was, it was uh, drugs-related. But to give these kids opportunities, whether they're in foster care, whether they've been victims of sex trafficking, whatever it may be, I'm hoping that through the foundation we can continue to offer programs that help uh, a variety of kids, not just those that are privileged that are able to do dance sport, which was what my son was involved in as well. And, uh, you know, on a regular interview, you probably would be bombarded with questions like, you know, how much were you awarded? How much were you asking for? How do you feel about that? Do you think the judge could have changed the matter? What do you want for Officer Higgins next? Are your attorneys going to appeal? Is anyone else going to And those are the questions that I'm not really interested in because I've always felt you know, the lawyers, number one, will take care of lawyers, and that's just my personal opinion. Let that handle itself. I'm really more interested in uh, this experience of how you, you're a mom, you have a beautiful son, and he's not here anymore, and you've survived, and now you have this wonderful foundation because he was an awesome dancer, and he loved dancing. Now you send teachers 
volunteering their time to schools and special locations to teach. So that's what we're part of, the CBC Foundation. Um, Kim, is there anything that you would like to um, share with our listeners before we sign off? Well, like I had said, I agreed to do this interview because it was the first time I had a chance to talk. I haven't had a chance to tell the story the way that I feel it really needs to be told. And maybe um, maybe that's still yet to come, whether it's in another interview, whether it's in a book, whether it's in something else in the future or a different type of documentary, uh, to really tell the story the way I feel the story needs to be told. Um, but I, I do think that I want to leave it that, uh, as you mentioned, there's still a lot of things that can happen, and this was never just about money. It was about uh, making an impact and changing something and making sure people were accountable for their actions, even if they are um, within our legal system, people aren't above the law, and that's very important as well. So I'm pleased with the outcome of the excessive force verdict. Um, and I, um, you know, there are some pieces that I think could have been uh, dealt with a little bit differently, but it's a start. And I think uh, baby steps sometimes. So uh, we start, we start making the changes and you have to start somewhere. So for you, the number one thing, like you said, was to make sure that the case ended in, on some note, but it wasn't about how he died. Connor, but and also that you wanted Officer Higgins to be um, put on, on in public what 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 he what his real involvement was because he this was your son and there were there could have been alternative options and the video cam on the car caught everything so it was kind of hard to doubt and uh, interpret that although you did say there were some funny times when when, they were, when the other team was trying to turn things around I thought it were comical but you were going to say something. Yeah, I think that you just hit that. I, I think that it's very important to know that Connor was a human being. He was a living person. He had a, a life and he had value and he was my son. He was a person. And I feel like Officer Higgins just didn't even take any of that into consideration and just executed him and blew him away and took that life away rather than trying all other means to keep a life and save a life and that's what I feel law enforcement should do and that's why this was so important to me to recognize what he did take away (coughs) we're all getting choked up here thank you so much for sharing this uh, intimate and um significant experience with us Kim uh, a guest here at the Full-Blooded Podcast and uh, sponsored by FreeBallroomLessons.com my name is Mr. X but you can call me Leo and we'll see you here back again